ladies. Great fellowship going on. That's wonderful. Yeah, if I knew how to do this, I would, but I don't know how to do that. So. How's everybody doing this morning? Well, last week, um, we did not begin this way, uh, but beginning this week, when we start, we'll always begin with questions, if you have any questions. So uh, if, you, if you're not like me, when you have a question, and just go, hello, I have a question, you can pass it along to your leader, and, and most of them will love to raise, <laughs> raise their hand. No, they're at least willing to raise their hand and ask me uh, that question. So. Uh, feel free to do that uh, if you have a question. Also, one other thing, um, if you miss a week um, and you want to hear the lecture or you want the notes, those are both online at brookside.net. Um, I think it's changed. I think you go to messages now, am I right, Chris? You go to messages and you go to women's messages, and as of right now, I'm it on there, so as far as I know. So yeah, <laughs> um, yeah I tell people I'm downloadable. Uh, so. <laughs> Uh, so if you miss a week and you want to hear the lecture, um, then you can just do that, and there should be a link to the notes, to the, to the um, outline there as well that you can print off. So do you have any questions for me before we begin? Yes, Diane, willing to raise her hand. Yes, he's referring to the incarnation. He's referring to the birth of Jesus Christ, that his life that the life appeared on earth. And I'll allude to that. I might not say it in that specific terms. Any other questions? Great, let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for today. Thank you so much for these ladies that are here. Uh, and thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much that it is true uh, and, and the truth contained in it, the foundational truths that we will talk about today. Um, bring hope and life and meaning to our lives. So we thank you and praise you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, just by way of a very brief review, the letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John were written by the Apostle John, the author of the Gospel of John. And they were written late in the first century, like after A.D. 80 or, and between like A.D. 80 and A.D. 100, late in the first century. But why they are, were written is even more important than that um, because they were written to combat false teachers. False teachers within the church were preaching heresy. And that led to a split in the church. It divided the churches around Ephesus um, that... John was the leader over. But even after they left the church and, and split off, they continued to try and influence members of the church. They continued to try to sway those church members to believe this heresy. Uh, and it was written for two reasons. And the first is essentially to combat that heresy. Uh, it, it was to urge members to not be led astray. Don't listen to this heresy they are preaching. Uh, and then secondly, it was written to reassure the members in their own faith, to reassure them of the truth of the gospel that they knew to be true. And it, as, as one theologian put it, he was strengthening their commitment to what they already knew, the truth of the gospel, the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
So we begin with these first four verses in 1 John, and, and they're called the prologue, meaning kind of the introduction of his letter. And they say this, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to you to make our joy complete. Now I want to kind of back up and just look at those four verses as a whole, but then we're going to zero in uh, and look at them more specifically. You find here, and I had you read this week, really strong echoes of John 1, of the Gospel of John, right? These two passages are complementary. So we see in John 1, 1 through 5, John writes this, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, meaning Jesus. You could replace that word word with the word Jesus. In the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Oops, I didn't mean to go that far. Well, we'll keep it there. Um, I don't have my little thing up here, so I'm going to incorporate it. I'm, I'm going high-tech on you, uh, not writing it on a board anymore. So you, we see these common themes, right? The word, the word in John, and, and, and then John in, in 1 John calls Jesus the word of life. And we see those themes of life and light in both the prologue of the Gospel of John and the prologue of 1 John. But it is this concept of Jesus as the word, and the Greek word is logos, as the word that is central to both passages. And they are complementary passages. Uh, in fact, in 1 John, John is going to expand on two themes um, from the prologue of the Gospel of John. And those two themes are, first of all, the reality of the Incarnation. That God came to earth and was born as a human being in Jesus Christ. And therefore, Jesus was fully God and fully man. Uh, and then secondly, the second uh, theme that he's going to pick up on in this prologue is what Dr. Burge calls the fabric of Christian community. And he's going to tie those two things together in an interesting, wonderful, unique way. So why these themes? Why these themes of the incarnation and Christian community? Well, the, the theme of incarnation uh, was, was about, all about the dispute that was going on within the church. Part of that dispute, in fact, in large part, the heresy was Christological. And that's a fancy, I didn't write it up there, but it's Christological. Um, it, Christological is a word that means who Jesus is and what he has done. It's just a fancy theology word, but it was centered on this person of Jesus and who he is 
and what he has done. And what we will find as we walk through 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John is that these secessionists, as they're called, these people that had split the church, that were in the church, they left the church, they seceded from the church, but continued to try and teach heresy, they were teaching wrong things about Jesus. They were teaching wrong things about who Jesus was and is and what he did. And everything else is going to kind of flow from this, this idea of who Jesus is. One of those false teachings was that it, it, it combated the incarnation, that God did not come down in the form of Jesus, that Jesus could not have been both fully God or fully man. One or two of two things could have been taught. One is, and we see these both taught actually in the second century, uh, one is that he was fully, or that he was fully, he only appeared, he was fully God, but he only appeared to be human. He seemed to be human, or seemed to be, yeah, human, but he wasn't really. Uh, he was God's spirit, not a human being. Another teaching, and this actually was toward the end of John's life that this was being taught, was that he was um, fully God, fully human. He was a human being. And at his baptism, the Spirit of God came to rest on him. And just before his crucifixion, the Spirit of God left him, but he was not fully God. He was, a, he was endowed with the Spirit of God, but he was not fully God. John won't have any of that. Whether, whether they were teaching, yeah, he was fully human, but he wasn't fully God, or whether they were teaching, yeah, he was fully God, but he wasn't fully human, it doesn't matter. Because John will have none of that. Right out of the box, John combats that in the strongest way, saying God came to earth, and we saw him, and we heard him, and we touched him. And he was the word, the living word, the word of life. So um, then the second thing, the second theme, is that as these secessionists were doing these um, th th this false teaching, as they were teaching this false teaching, they split the church. They destroyed the fabric of Christian community in doing so. And the community of these churches was fractured by these teachers. So in addition to this, and as part of this, the secessionists were arrogant, elitist, and unloving. So not only were they teaching false things about Jesus, they were, living out a, they were living out a false understanding of the gospel as well. Not only were they preaching heresy, but in effect they were living out heresy by fracturing the community of the churches. Both of these things are necessary. Both right thinking and right living are necessary. And in fact, right living flows from right thinking. As Dr. Gary Burge says, he says, John assumes that intimate fellowship in the Christian community is only possible when there is consensus about the identity and presence of Jesus. That if we get that wrong, we get everything wrong. We have to understand who Jesus is. Now, to understand this, I want to take a look at actually the Greek uh, not necessarily the literal Greek translation, but the way this passage is organized in the Greek. Because to make it more understandable in English, it was kind of reorganized. Means the same thing. But I find fascinating the way John organized this passage originally. Oops. Let's go back. Here we go. 
So this is how it's organized in the Greek. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we beheld and our hands have touched, our hands touched, concerning the word of life. And the life appeared, and we have seen and testify and announced to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was revealed to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. So the emphasis here is on the proclamation of Jesus. And what, what John is proclaiming about Jesus is all of these things that we find in verses 1 through 4. He is saying about Jesus that Jesus was from the beginning, that he and others, they, or he uses the word we, have heard him, have seen him, have touched him. They are not just eyewitnesses of Jesus Christ. They are eye, ear, and hand witnesses to the incarnation of God in Jesus Christ. He is proclaiming, John is proclaiming that Jesus is the word of life, meaning that he is God. Uh, he is the word of life who appeared, was born on earth. He is proclaiming that Jesus is eternal, and eternal life is found only in him. He is proclaiming that Jesus was with God the Father in heaven, but has now been revealed to man. And John says, this is what we have seen, this is what we have heard, this is what we have touched. John is not simply telling us what he believes with his mind. He's telling us what he's seen with his own eyes, what he's heard with his own ears, and what he's touched with his own hands. And that, ladies, is the basis for his authority to write these things. And it is compelling authority indeed. However, the point of this passage isn't so much the proclamation itself, what is being proclaimed. It is who is being proclaimed, and that is Jesus. I love this quote from Gary Burge. He says, in Christ, God walked with humankind, and anyone who had contact with that reality, anyone who had heard, seen, and touched that reality could never make it less than pivotal. He who existed from limitless eternity has entered time and space and taken up residence here on earth. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that beautiful that God would condescend, that he would love you so much, that he would love me so much, that he would condescend to come to this earth that is yucky for us, for us. That is beautiful. Remember, and some of you are so young that you don't. And a couple of you are so old that you don't, but that's okay. No remember, no names, I'm not even names, no. And I barely remember it because my little sister liked the song. But uh, remember the song by Alanis Morissette, What If God Was One of Us? The first, like, everybody's like, I'm not too old. I remember. Yeah. <laughs> the first line of that song is, if God had a name, what would it be? I'll tell you what it would be. I'll tell you what it is. His name is Jesus. What if God was one of us? He was. 
he came to this earth for us. And whatever we are experiencing, he understands. Because he lived in this world and he came to make a way for us to have a relationship with him in this sometimes often dark and disturbing and confusing world. Well, let's take this verse and let's break it down a little bit, beginning with just the first part of the first verse. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. So he is emphasizing here the human senses. And, and he begins by saying that which was from the beginning, meaning Jesus, who, because this is what we proclaim, that he was from the beginning. But what does he mean by from the beginning? And, and this, this term is going to be used a lot of times in John and actually in 1 John, and actually it means different things uh, at different times. And there is disagreement about what it means here. He could be saying, as he says in the Gospel of John, that he has always been, that Jesus has always been, that he is from eternity past. And that is what he says in John 1, and that is true. And actually, he'll make that point in verse 2, that he is the eternal life. Um, but he could also mean that from the moment of his birth, or perhaps the moment of, uh, he was conceived, but in, in essence, from the very beginning of his life. We proclaim this about him. And both things are certainly true, and he may be intentionally vague here. He may be meaning both things. But his emphasis in this first part of the first verse right away is on the incarnation. And John uses here the human senses to dispel any notion that Jesus was not fully human. It is unambiguous. It is forceful. And he uses the plural. He says we. He doesn't say I proclaim this. He says this we proclaim because he wasn't the only eye, ear, hand witness to Jesus. There were many. And he wants to make sure we understand that. That he's not some rogue teacher out here preaching something funny. There were many. In fact, at one point in Paul, when he's talking about the resurrection, he says, if you don't believe me, there's a bunch of other people you can ask that saw the risen Christ, and they're still alive. Go ask them if they saw him. Uh, and so he is saying we uh, very forcefully. And he underscores the point. I love this. He doesn't just say we've seen it. He says we've seen it, and we've looked at it. He reinforces that, that it is really true, and that he really did see Jesus, and he really is God incarnate, fully God, fully human. And then he talks about the word of life, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. This we proclaim about Jesus. The life appeared, Jesus appeared. We have seen it and testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with, so Jesus is the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. So this concept of the word, in John he calls, John calls Jesus the word, and here he calls him the word of life. And this concept of Jesus, this title even of Jesus being the word, is very deep and meaningful. Even in fact, in Old Testament Judaism, this is not 
just a Christian term. Now, it is a Christian term for Jesus, but it's used of God in the Old Testament. In creation, God spoke creation into existence. As Gary Burgepot puts it, the word is the creative self-expression of God by which he created the universe. And we find out in John 1 that that creative expression by which he created the universe is Jesus. All things were made through him, and without him, Jesus, nothing was made that has been made. He is the word. He is the creative expression of God the Father. That was John 1, 3, by the way. But further, the word is that which holds the universe together and gives purpose not only to the universe, but to our individual lives as well. And that is Jesus. In Colossians 1, 15 through 17, Paul writes this, the Son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's Jesus. In Acts, Paul quotes a poet and says of Jesus that in him, in Jesus, we live and move and have our being. But John has even more in mind here because he doesn't just call Jesus the word. He, that's all true, and he means that. But he calls Jesus the word of life. And what does that mean then? Well, John 1 can give us uh, some understanding of this. In John 1, John writes, the Gospel of John, John writes, in him, in Jesus, was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. Life is in Jesus Christ. He is the eternal life. I played with that statement because I think we could say it a number of ways. He is the eternal life. He is the eternal life. He is the eternal life, and he is the eternal life, and he is the eternal life. They're all true. He is all of that. He is the eternal life, meaning he is from everlasting to everlasting. Jesus is God. He is fully God, and eternal life is found only in him. Jesus himself said this in one of my very favorite passages of one of my very favorite chapters of the Bible, John 14, where Jesus is telling his disciples, don't be afraid, don't be discouraged. I'm going to the Father and I'm going to prepare a place for you so that you might be there with me one day and you know the way where I'm going. And Thomas, who could be a little thick-headed, and actually all 12 of them could be pretty thick-headed, was like, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? If we don't know, we don't know. There's no GPS on this one, Jesus. And Jesus answered him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes before the Father except through me. You want to know the way to God, know the way to heaven? Know Jesus, because he's it. He is life, and he is the way to God. But John witnessed not just uh, well, it, it, I, I'm sorry, let me back up a little bit. 
The eternal life of God has come to us through Jesus, through his incarnation. And John says that we can know this is true because he, has, he and a bunch of other people have witnessed it. But he didn't just witness Jesus' life on earth. And he very forcefully states this in the Gospel of John. He witnessed the crucifixion of Jesus. And he witnessed the resurrection of Jesus as well. He saw and heard and touched the risen Christ. And he is testifying to the truth of the gospel of the risen Christ. And he is saying that the truth of the gospel is embodied in Jesus who died and rose again. Again, Dr. Burge says this. He, John, is making a compelling appeal. He is offering a testimony not just to a coherent orthodox theology, but to a living word, Jesus Christ, whose reality is the principal reference point of his life, of John's life. But Jesus ought not just be the principal reality of John's life. He should be the principal reality and reference point of our own lives as well. Well, in verses 3 and 4, John says this, We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to you to make our joy, joy complete. Uh, so he begins here by saying the purpose of what he's writing, why he's writing this, about Jesus, why he's proclaiming this about Jesus. And that is so that his readers might have fellowship with him and with other believers. And that fellowship is also with God and with Jesus. Indeed, it is found nowhere else. This is a word on Christian community, on fellowship. Community involves partnering with other believers in a shared experience of Christ. We do life together, as the saying goes. We serve together. We spur one another on to love and good deeds. We hold one another accountable, all of which is wonderful, but it is so much more than that if we understand what John is saying. Because there isn't just a horizontal component here. There's a vertical component. He says, I want you to have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with God and with his son, Jesus. This is what Dr. Burge says about this. He says, fellowship is not just the coincidence of a shared experience of God, where we compare our private spiritual walks. It is living and experiencing the father and son together as believers. And in fact, true Christian fellowship is triangular because God, our, our fellowship is not only with each other, it's with God, Father and Son. And what happens to us as we grow closer to God? We grow closer to each other. We have to. There's no other way to go because of that fellowship we have with God. Christian fellowship is designed by God to work this way. And apart from Jesus Christ, it is not possible because he is what binds us together. Now, I'm not saying you can't have fellowship with someone who's not a believer. You can. But you can't have this. 
You can't have true, genuine Christian fellowship. And in fact, John's saying something implicit here. Look at, look at that a little closer. He's saying, we, I want you to have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with God and with Jesus. Theirs is not. So fellowship with God and Jesus is only in true Christian fellowship. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with having fellowship with other believers. I'm saying it's just a completely different animal. I'll give you an example. My best friend Chrissy lives in Minnesota. We were college roommates. And while we were roommates, she would tell you that she thought she knew Jesus, but she didn't know Jesus. And I tried really hard to help her know Jesus. And I would talk to her about Jesus. And this was her standard response every time I tried. Because I love Chrissy, and I wanted her to know Jesus. And this was her standard reply. I have a faith. It's a personal thing. I don't want to talk about it. And so we lived through college, and I, we graduated, and she went through some stuff in life. And I was prompted by God at some point to write to her and, and explain the gospel one more time to her in a letter, and I didn't, and that's my bad. I got a call from Chrissy one day. Amy, the most amazing things happened to me. I know Jesus now. Now, I loved Chrissy before she knew Jesus, and we had so much fun. I could tell you so many stories. Like the time she liked to answer the phone, Harlan Foss is home for unwed mothers, when do you do? Harlan Foss was the president of the college. I had a relationship with Harlan's wife. She kind of thought me as her second daughter. And one time when Chrissy said, Harlan Foss is home for unwed mothers, when are you due? She heard on the other line, um, this is B. Foss. Is Amy there? It was the president's wife. I could tell you all kinds of stories about Chrissy. We, 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 we uh, came to love one another when we found out that we both loved Donny Osmond our freshman year. And so those of you who know me know that this is, this is my Donny friend. So, so and now some of you are like, I'm never coming back to this study again. And some of you are like, who's Donny Osmond? Um, we had fellowship. We loved one another. We had a great relationship but it is nothing compared to what we have now. How we spur one another on to love and good deeds, how we have this intimate connection through Christ, with Christ, and with each other. And that's the picture John is giving us, that this is only found, this kind of fellowship is only found in Christ. And then in verse 4, he gives his reason for writing, so that our joy may be complete. Does that seem odd to you? It's like, Shouldn't you want their joy to be complete? They're the ones that came to know Jesus. How does that make your joy complete? John is saying that his own joy cannot be complete if fellow believers whom he loves, for whom he would die, are being led astray, are not in fellowship with Jesus. And, and in fact, in, in 2 John and in 3 John, John is going to say, I have no greater joy than knowing my children are walking with the Lord. I understand that, and, and most of you know this, that for several years, our son Josh, after he went away to college, went away to the Air Force Academy, he became very angry with God, and he walked away from his faith. And I can't even tell you how many sleepless nights I had and how hard that was for me. I get that. I also get that on a trip to Zambia, because of an orphan boy named Gift, he came back to Jesus, and I can't explain that joy either, because that joy was greater then I can explain. I get that. He's saying, look, if you stay in fellowship with us and fellowship with God and Jesus, man, that, that's really what gives me joy. And, or a thing that really gives me joy. 
and it will make his joy complete if they know that kind of fellowship. Well, in verses 5 through 7, we leave the prologue and we enter into kind of the body of the message. And, and he tells us what that message is. He says, this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. So this is the message, and that signals a transition here, that he's transitioning away from the prologue, the, the introduction, and into the body of the letter. And actually, he'll do this again in, in 1 John 3.11. He'll say, this is the message, and there he's going to say, God is love. But here he says, God is light. And it's a reminder that right thinking about God is important, and that right thinking about God leads to changed lives. And that's what we see in these verses. We must understand and accept the truth in order to live by it. So God is light. This is the message we, we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. So this is the message we have heard from him. From who? Who is him? Him is Jesus. This is the message we heard from Jesus that God is light. This message is anchored in the historic, objective reality of the teaching of Jesus. And it is consistent with Old Testament teaching about God's character. It is also consistent with what Jesus said about himself. In John 8, 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. What we read just a minute ago in 1 John 4 and 5, John writes, In him, in Jesus, was life, and that life was the light of all men. The light, Jesus, shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. So here's John's logic. He says, God is light. Jesus is God come to earth. Therefore, Jesus brought light, God's light to earth. He is the light. So God is light and Jesus is light. Pure, perfect, righteous light. There is no darkness in him. Now that light reveals truth, but that light also judges our hearts and our actions. It's kind of like if you're in a really dark room, you can't see a thing, right? And you turn on a light, and all of a sudden you see things. And some things are good to see and you want to see. It reveals truth. Some things you don't want to see. Like when we were in a really dark restaurant one time in the old market, and Jeff says, look over there in the corner. This is a mouse. This is a mouse. I don't want to see that. Sometimes we see things that we don't want to see because of light. Good thing the restaurant wasn't completely dark. They probably, you know, Ben would have been probably crawling over my food or something. So, but you know what? That's a good thing. That's actually grace. That is God's grace. Because God is not shining this light on us like a lightning bolt. I'll show you. Boom! No. He's shining the light to invite us into it. 
to walk with him in that light. He wants us to see the truth so that we will walk in it. Um, so this truth that God is light will now become the basis for what John is going to tell us in 1 John 1, 6 through 2, 2. It's going to be the basis of his ethical teaching. Because God is light, now this is how we live, or this is how we will live if we walk in the light. Life in the darkness, however, is very different. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk... Was I supposed to read all of that? Just six. Sorry. Uh, so if we walk in the darkness, if we claim to walk in the darkness, this is the first of several times where he's going to say, if we claim, and then name the claim. Here, it's if we claim to walk in the light. But we don't really walk in the light. We're actually walking in darkness. And, and what he is doing here is he is saying what the secessionists have said. So this is likely a claim that the secessionists, the false teachers, have made. Hey, guys, we walk in the light. But their lives told a very different story. They claimed to have fellowship with God, but in truth, they walked in the darkness rather than in God's light. Their lives, their conduct, revealed the truth of where they were walking. Now, that word walking is very interesting. In the Greek, that word is peripateo. And it doesn't just mean to take a stroll. It doesn't just mean to walk. It's actually a Jewish idiom, a Jewish expression for a way of life, for a habitual way of living, that this is what characterizes one's life. So these people were living lives of darkness. They weren't just doing some bad things. They weren't just slipping up here and there. These false teachers were determined, uh, or this darkness, this way of living, characterized their lives. This word implies a determination to choose sin, to choose darkness, over choosing God and his light. But they didn't just live um, the truth, but, or not live the truth. It says, do not live by the truth, or they show that they do not live out the truth. Literally, where it says... They do not live out the truth. Literally in the Greek, that says they do not do the truth. Truth is not just something, some doctrine that we give mental assent to. It's not some belief that we believe in our heads. Truth is something we do. It is the way we live our lives. So it's not enough just to claim to know God we must live in the light of his truth. Indeed, we must live in his life. So these secessionists claim to have fellowship with God, but by their lives and by the division that they wreaked on the church, they showed that they were walking in darkness. True fellowship with God causes us to have true fellowship with one another within the body of Christ. It doesn't create division. And then in verse 7, he ends this passage by saying, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us 
from all sin. Again, we see walking. If we peripateo, if our way of life is in the light, is in Jesus, our way of life should be in step with God and his truth. We walk with him, following him in the light. And if we do that, two things, at least two things, result. First, there will be genuine fellowship with other believers, the kind of fellowship that John has just described. This has to happen, like the triangle showed. If we walk in the light, if we're growing toward Jesus, we will grow toward one another. It can't help but happen. And then secondly, our sins will be forgiven. John makes a very unusual and interesting connection here between our relationships with each other and our relationship with God. We cannot have one without the other. They are inextricably connected. The secessionists had destroyed the fabric of Christian community. And even today within the body of Christ, that happens. Our relationships, our our fellowship is fractured. It ought not be. If we're living in the light, it will not be. Dr. Burge says, when participation in the body of Christ is motivated by interests other than the worship of God, when the foundation of our spirituality is not built, built on a candid assessment of sin and a healing experience of forgiveness, when the center of spiritual life, Jesus Christ, is gone, then churches cannot build the transforming, forgiving, generous communities they desire. Walking in the light is the only way we can genuinely walk with each other. That is what John is is pointing to. That is what he is envisioning. That kind of community. The second result is forgiveness of sins. Because walking in the light allows us to see ourselves as we really are. It shines the light on the sin of our lives. And so it brings a recognition of our own sinfulness. That's something else, by the way, that as we walk through this book, we're going to find out that they denied. They, believed, they said, the secessionists said they were without sin, that they just didn't sin anymore. Um, so walking in the light helps us to understand who we really are, which leads to repentance and confession, and forgiveness, which is why Jesus died. Truly, our Christian communities must be built at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ. Amen? Well, let's apply some of this foundational truth. Um, In Sunday school, uh, not Sunday school, I'm part of the group, I should know this better. In the Institute last week, (laughs) on Sunday, uh, which is our adult Sunday school, for those of you who aren't Brooksiders, Um, We're studying, one of the classes is studying Bible doctrine. And Tim Wiebe talked about different kinds of of doctrine and that there's doctrine that's worth worth dying for, that this cannot be changed, that this cannot be marginalized, that this cannot be set aside. This is doctrine that makes or breaks Christianity. There's also doctrine over which we can divide. And we can say, you know what? I don't agree with this. Have friends that visited a church, found out something they believed, and they're like, you know what? You're you're a believing church, I understand that, but I can't be part of this fellowship because we don't agree on this. You're my brother or sister in Christ, that's fine, but we we divide over over this issue. And then there's some that we can debate, lots of them that we can debate, that we say, you know what, this is what I think, this is what I think. You know what, you may be right. I mean, especially end time stuff, you know. We'll know when we get there. It's like, oh, that's when the rapture.
rapture is right then. But, but I don't know that we can make those specific decisions right now. Maybe you do think that you can. That's something we can debate. But still be sisters in Christ and love one another. This, this doctrine that's being presented in the first seven verses, this is doctrine worth dying for. This is something that cannot be changed. And here is one doctrine worth dying for. God entered our world in the form of Jesus Christ in order that we may be right, be made right with God, in order that we might have fellowship with God, have a relationship with God in Christ. Jesus was fully God and fully man. He was the only one that could have created that relationship, that could have made us right with God. Here's another doctrine worth dying for. In him, in Jesus, and in him alone is eternal life. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And this, ladies, is Christology. This is who Jesus is, and it is what he has done. And it is foundational for our faith. John doesn't give us some list of do's or don'ts that we're supposed to follow for our lives. He links Christology, who Jesus is, with with our community, with our relationships with each other, with our lives together for a reason. Because right understanding of Jesus should inform every aspect of our lives. The truth is that Jesus is the only one who can transform our lives. And his incarnation is central to all of that. It sets Christianity apart from every other religion. But do we believe that? In the 90s, the George Barna group took a poll. And they found out that 97% of Americans believe in a god or gods who have control over the universe, who have power over the universe. And then they interviewed people who called themselves Christians. 64% of Americans believe that, the world's, that, that um, all of the world's religions essentially pray to the same God. 64%, not just Christians, all Americans, believe that essentially all religions are the same and they all pray the same God. Of those who called themselves evangelicals, 46% agreed, almost half. Of those who called themselves born again, 48% agreed. And of those who identified themselves as regular church attendees, 62% agreed. This is how Gary Birch, what he has to say about this. This is astonishing. Within the pews of America's churches, two-thirds of the people do not believe in the exclusive character of the Christian message, and almost half of all evangelicals say the same. Do we really believe it? Jesus is the light of the world. Do we really believe it? He is life. He is the only way to eternal life with God. Is that exclusive? Yes, it is. But it's also true. And God could have left us without any way. But he chose to provide a way himself by coming to earth in the form of Jesus Christ. Ladies, we must do the truth. Our way of walking, our way of living must be in his light. And that is this natural, the supernatural probably, result of our connection to him. 
And it is in this connection and only in this connection that we have true, true, genuine Christian fellowship with each other. That's John's starting point in this letter. That this truth of an incarnational God who came to earth so that we might have fellowship both with God and with each other. But that's not just the starting point for John's letter. That must be the starting point for our lives, both as individuals and corporately as believers in fellowship with one another. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much. Thank you so much that you did not leave us without a way. You yourself stooped down and took care of that for us, that burden of sin, that debt of sin that we can never repay. You paid it for us because you love us. Father, help us not only to believe that, but to live it in our lives. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thanks, ladies.